Section 51 of Frontier Humor in Verse, Prose, and Picture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Frontier Humor in Verse, Prose, and Picture by Palmer Cox. Jim Dudley's Sermon. Hereafter, I shall have no faith in reports. Last week I heard that Jim Dudley had left the city, and was congratulating myself on at last escaping him. But my congratulations were premature. Last night he called upon me, and kept me in torture for fully two hours at a time, too, when I should have been asleep. But what cared he for that? The scoundrel? There was no shaking him off. He sticks to a person like mortar to a brick. I had to sit and listen though I do honestly believe every word the fellow uttered was an unqualified lie. But he swears to its truth, and how can I prove it otherwise? It is better to take it as it comes, and ask no questions for conscience' sake. I never told you about the sermon I preached over in Misertown one Sunday. I had a time of it there, and no mistake. Hold on a minute, and I'll, I'll tell you how it was. You see, Gil Bisbee, that plaguey shirk. I never mentioned his name, but what I feel like trouncing of him. But he was a genius, though, and no fooling about it. A natural-born inventor, chock-full of notions as a toy shop. But somehow or another, he never could bring anything to a paying focus. All his whittling and born and planning round, though, wherever you'd meet him, he'd be hauling out of his pocket some old drawing with more wheels and contrivances pictured on it than you could think of in a twelve-hour's dream. He never could get the cap-sheave on to his endeavor, though. All or something to miss, a wheel too many, or another one-one, or too many cogs to have the thing work just right. He invented a contrivance for plucking chickens. That was a rustler. He shoved the fowls through the machine something like a corn-sheller, and jit him in an electric shock while passing along, and shot him out of a spout at the other end of the machine as bare as weaver's shuttles. He didn't make anything of it, though. He had to check him through while alive, you see, and that clashed with the law. When he took the machine down to the city to introduce it to the poultry dealers, the society fellows who look out for the interests of dumb critters got arter him and sewed him up. They put a reef in his jib pooty quick now, I tell you. They were passing along through the market one day, and they saw Gil just a humping himself showing off the apparatus to the market men. He was cranking and pumping away, like a sailor when there's fifteen feet of water in the hold and still resin, and the chickens were a-screaming and a-scooting through that contrivance, close as if they were running on a string-head against tail, there's a cloud of feathers hovering round over it. Didn't they fasten on to that Gil Bisby, though? They snatched him up quicker than if he had been hoss-stealing and confiscated his plucker, and tucked an all-fired heavy fine on to him besides. Meeting with such poor encouragement in that direction, he went back to Scullyville, and set out to invent a thundering great machine for laying cobblestones. That was just him all over. All are starting in to get up some outlandish-looking thing. This machine was a crusher, and no getting round it. It was fearful enough to make a cow slip or cut. I'll be shot if it wasn't. It looked something like Noah's Ark, set on wheels, and filled with all kinds of machinery. He started in to explain one moonlit night in front of the courthouse, but got the main belt crossed or something. I disremember just what. And Jerusalem! Less than ten minutes he ran the whole population out to the foothills in our night clothes. 
There wasn't no stopping the consarned thing. Poor Gill was knocked down senseless at the first revolution. Nobody ever knowed how to control it. They rolled the whole length of the square, tearing up the stones that had pounded down the day before, and sending off of them buzzing over the village in all directions. No home was sacred, and no head was safe, as the poet has it. Poor old Mrs. Schooley lived just long enough to learn this, and no longer. She was going once too often to get her pitcher filled at the corner grocery that night, and a stone took her in the small of the back as she was entering the door, and it hissed at her clear over the counter on top of a barrel. It's true as I'm telling it to you. Poor old body. She was the pioneer female of the village, too. The first woman to wash a shirt in Scullyville. But arter all, the town wasn't much loser by her passing away. She was a sort of panicky old critter, anyhow. Always scary about catching the smallpox or any other prevailing disease that came round. The old village physician said he would rather see the very old scratch making towards him on the street than old Mrs. Schooley. Coming from church or market, as the case might be, she would fasten on to him like a woodtick to a leaf, and he couldn't get rid of her nohow. She would have him time her pulse right there on the sidewalk, and be a shoving of her tongue out for his inspection. And she did have such an unlimited, walloping great tongue, too. It seemed when she was shoving all of it out, as though she was actually disgorging her liver. It's so, by jingo. People would be a-stopping and standing there, wondering what was the matter with the old gal. That is, people that didn't know her peculiarities, though most everybody in the village had seen her standing in that position so often, that they would be more surprised to see her with her tongue in her mouth than projecting it out in the rain. The old doctor used to be terribly annoyed. He would say, kind of hurriedly like, because he would be itching to get away from her. Oh, you're all right, I reckon, Mrs. Schooley, but you'd better be uh, getting along home and not stand too long in the cold air, with so much of your vital organs exposed to the weather. The result may be fearful, if not fatal. That would generally start her off pretty lively towards her shanty. They say the first time the doctor saw her tongue, he was surprised so much that he looked actually scared, says he. I've been nigh unto eight and thirty years of practice in physician, until this moment. I flattered myself that I was familiar with all the ins and outs of the profession, but I began to think I get over the dissected knife too soon, for here's something that I was not prepared for. But that's not telling you about the sermon, is it? But when I mentioned that Gil Bisbee, I sort of wandered off arter him and his contrivances. Well, that was about to tell you. Gil and I were sauntering round Misertown one Sunday, and we saw any number of gals going into the schoolhouse where the preaching was carried on. So we concluded to step in and get a better look at some of them. I didn't know how many of the people around there, but from what I heard, I judged they were the meanest, closed-fistedest set of sinners that ever had the gospel dispensed with amongst them. I understood they had treated their minister plaguey mean when he first came there to look arter him. There was no regular place for him to stop, you see, and they agreed amongst themselves to take turns to keeping him until they could get a house up for him. He was one of those young, easy, green kind of fellers that had seemingly never been so far away from home before, but what he could see the smoke of his father's chimney, or smell his mother's corn dodgers burning, and they soon took advantage of it, and sort of played button with him, shoving him around from one to another as though it was too hot to hold. He first went to a feller by the name of Wigglewort, Sesswig. I'm really very sorry, Mr. Sermon Slice. We unfortunately have no accommodations for you at present, 
We have no place for you to sleep. Thought we put you in the barn. The nights are rather cold for that. Besides, the rats might annoy you. Sorry you happened to come just at this time. Of all the others, the most embarrassing. It's not but what I would like to have you stop with us. I would indeed, Mr. Sermon Slice. Consider it an honor to have you. The minister, taking his books under his arm, started out into the night as though his life depended upon the most prompt kind of action. He wasn't within hailing inside of two minutes. He went over and succeeded in getting lodgings with a feller named Joe Grimsby, who lived over by Frog Marsh. Joe was too darn lazy to do his own praying. While the parson stopped with him, he got rid of it. They do say he was the laziest old curmudgeon that ever turned up his eyes. He used to say a prior at the beginning of the month, and on the following nights he would always allude to it in a sort of matter-of-fact way. You know my feelings towards ye. Nothing hid from ye, I reckon. I haven't changed my sentiments yet. If I do, I'll let you know of it. I'll keep nothing back from ye, though it should take the har off. He would go on in that business-like way, and the whole time be a-crawling in the bed. Well, as I was going to tell you, Gil and I poked into the building and sat down thar amongst the congregation. The minister hadn't come yet, and at pooty soon an old feller got up and sees he. It may be the minister has had late breakfast and will not get here for some time yet. In the meantime, as it's a dry season and our crops need a shower of rain, we might as well have a little praying going on. Can't do much harm anyhow, and we may be the means of bringing down a good smart shower. There'll be money in our pockets in the long run. He asked several to take hold and do something in that way. But one had a cold, another one was just getting over the mumps, and so they went making excuses. Finally the old fellow turned to me and says he, Perhaps you would lead us. You look like one who has had some experience that way. I thanked him for the compliment, but told him I was something like the officers in the army. I would rather follow than lead, but he stuck to me like a Jew to a customer. Otter a while I consented, and just as I was about starting in, a feller came in and said the minister had got a terrible tickling in his throat, caused by partly swallowing a hire in the butter over to old Joe Grimsby's, and couldn't attend to his duties that day. So the old chap got up again and says, We won't have any preaching then, without some person present will volunteer to act in our pastor's place this morning. But no one spoke up. Perhaps, he says, turning to me, would favor us by conducting the service, young man. You doubtless are competent to perform that duty. This sort of got me. Then the thought struck me. Perhaps I'd make something out of him by it. Besides, didn't want to plead ignorance right there amongst them. So getting up, I says, this is somewhat unexpected. Honors follow one another pooty fast. With that, I got into the pulpit and began to look down at him pooty seriously. There was no Bible on the desk, so I asked if there was any parson there that would loan me one for the occasion. Some of them spoke up and said they had books, but were in the habit of keeping them to follow along arter the minister, and correct him when he made a mistake. Besides, they liked to see how he worked out the text. I looked at them some time pooty hard. I thought they'd beaten anything I had come across for some time, and I had a good mind to get down again, only I allowed they'd laugh at me. So I says, all right, you can keep your books. I reckon I know enough by heart to get along with it, and then gin out something for them to sing. Short or long meter, inquired the leader of the singers, who were sitting over in the corner. I didn't exactly understand him, as I knowed he was in the 
habit of meeting Sal Clippercut over to Mrs. Curry's every Sunday afternoon. I allowed he was asking for something shorter, as he was long in the meter. I spoke up pretty sharp and says, You will please sing what I gin you to sing. I reckon you aren't long in the meter so bad, but what you can wait until after the service is over. She'll keep that long, I reckon, without spilling. I know her. She isn't none of your spring chickens, nother, I continued, just like that. And he ought to have seen the way he looked. And the gals commenced to snicker and crowd their handkerchiefs into their mouths. One little red-faced gritter that sat alongside of him tittered right out. Her mother, who was sitting nearby, jumped up and says, Becky Jane, you go right straight home this minute, and go to peel on the taters for dinner. But a feller who looked as though his mother had been a mulator, or even something of a darker shade, got up and says, The gal isn't to blame in the least. It's that feller in the pulpit thar. I, for one, don't want to hear any more of his lingo. Well, then you can stuff wool in your ears, I says, and you won't have far to go to get another, I continued, just that way, alluding to his own heart, which seemed pretty woolly. You ought to see how they looked, fast at him, then at me. He colored up, I reckon, but he was too black to show it. I heard him grit his teeth from where I was standing. He didn't say any more, but an old woman who was sitting near jumped up and Says she, the meeting house is turned into a theater. When a mountebank gets into the pulpit, it is high time for respectable people to be moving. I'll leave, she exclaimed, pulling her shawl around her shoulders and beginning to bustle out of her seat. Well, you can go, I hollered, just that way, for I was beginning to get sort of riled at the way things were a-going. When I'm talking politics or arguing over the merits of whiskey, I can bear crossing and any amount of contradiction. But right thar, where a feller had to be choice of his language, it was different business. You can go, I says. We can get along without you, I reckon. We're willing to chance it anyhow. Take your knitting along. Don't leave that behind, I continued, pointing to the sea as though I saw it lying thar. I didn't, though, but I wanted to give her a mighty hard rub, for I suspected her piety was put on and that she was displeased because nobody was noticing her new bonnet. The whole congregation took it for granted that the knitting was thar, and you ought to have seen them stretching and craning out thar necks as far as they could to get a look into the pew. One old feller that was settin' back pooty far craned out kind of quarterin' rather suddenly, and his neck in a crack like a bonbon. He commenced, oh, oh, and, and trying to get it back to its old position again, but he couldn't make any headway until his wife went to rubbing and chafing of it right to her. But that old woman, whew, she was as mad as a wet hen. She couldn't hardly find the door. She was so mixed up. When she finally got there, she turned round and straightened of herself up. She says, Young man, before she got any further, I broke in on her, for I judged she had a tongue that was hung in the middle. So I says, That'll do. That'll do, Mrs. You can move along. You're disturbing the peace of the congregation. Besides all that, you're showing your false teeth mighty bad in the bargain. She got out arter that pooty lively, now I can tell you. I could see her as she went up the road towards her home, and two or three times she stopped and turned round, acted as though she had half a mind to come back and try the whole thing over again. But arter standing there a while thinking like a pig, when it's listening to the grass taking root, she would shake her head and move along up the turnpike as though she concluded that she had had enough of that kind of pie. 
This piece of performance sort of throwed me off the track. While I was standing there thinking where to start in with the discourse, Gil Bisbee come a crawfishing up the steps to one side of me, and whispering says he, I say, Jim, you haven't got the track blocks already, have you? No, I answered. I ain't got the track blocks. But I got the ropes twisting round, and things look generally mixed up just now, I can tell you. Well, start in on the sermon at once, then, he urged. They are getting mighty impatient now, I can tell you. You've got to be doing something pooty quick. But whatever you do, he continued, don't get up very high without having some idea how you're going to get down again. Keep steering round waters that you've piloted over before. Remember, a blind mouse shouldn't venture very far from its hole, especially if there's a whole generation of cats watching of it. With that, he backed down to his seat again, and took out his pencil, and began to design a machine for picking the bones out of fish. On the fly-leaf of a book that was lying there, I started in on the sermon. It wasn't much of a sermon, to be sure. More like a lecture. I couldn't think of any passages of scripture just then, so I ginned them the line from the philosopher. Why does the frightened dog depress his tail when he runneth? You ought to have seen him rustling and turning the leaves, hunting to find the passage. One old feller by the name of Spud commenced to paw over the pages, and his wife says, Don't go that way. Turn back to the book of Job. He looked round at her with his under lip sticking out just that way. Otter wetting of his thumb to start turning over again, and says, Job be biled and buttered. I can pick old Solomon from amongst a thousand of them. He was sound on the goose, he was. Two or three of them started in to ask me where the text was located, but I kept on talking right straight talking along, looking round to all of them at once, and no one in particular. I didn't even make chance to stop me again, or get a word in edgewise. One singular-looking old coon with a weed on his hat got up and stood singling at me, and waiting and watching for a chance to ask me something. I never let on to see him. I reckon he stood there five minutes with his finger up, pointing to attract my attention, and his mouth opened so wide that from my elevated position I could tell what he had swallowed for breakfast. I gin him a sort of rambling discourse, alluding to the prevailing passions and errors of the age. Amongst other things, I touched on jealousy a little. I wanted to stir him up a trifle on that subject, because there was a great deal of jealousy in that neighborhood. The green-eyed monster was a ranting and a raving round in a good many households, and as it generally turns out, there was least cause for it where it was most prevailing. One old feller was moved by the first remark, when I said, quoting from the poet, Jealousy in the wife is worse than trichina in the pork. He leaned over to the man sitting in the next pew and says, I can't tell you for the life of me where he gets the passage. But it's a solid truth, anyhow. So I went on, and finished the sermon, or lecture, rather. And then I says, The choir will please sing the hymn beginning, Give, give, give to the needy, order which I will pass around amongst the congregation, and take up a collection for the benefit of the heathen and foreign parts. Gee, Whitaker, you ought to have seen them turn around and look at each other when I said that. I can't describe it to you. I can't do the scene justice. If I had told him I was going to stay with him through the season, I could hardly have started him to thinking any more than I did by telling him about that collection for the heathen and foreign parts. After two or three attempts, the singing began. I closed my eyes and leaned back in my chair, minister-like, 
commenced to estimate the probable yield of each pew. Well, I was thinking thar and calculating how much I would make by the preaching business. I noticed the singing dying out, and it dying out slowly, like as the prisoner said his hopes were when the sheriff was a fumbling around his neck just on the rope. So I opened my eyes easy like, as though coming back to earthly scenes reluctantly. And you can water my whiskey if I wasn't just in time to see old Ned Scullet's coattails whisking round the door jam. The hindmost rag of the congregation. Women and children and all were gone sure enough. On looking out of the window I see em a scattering, a hustling and elbowing themselves ahead of each other along the turnpike, as though there were great danger in being left behind. Would you believe it? There was that plaguey shirk, Gil Bisbee a craning up the hill leading the crowd. I sat there a while, looking after him, and then, coming down, I began to look around a little, and pooty soon I noticed that several of them left their hats. They were in such a hurry to get out, so I selected the good one, only twas a little out of fashion, and putting it on, I says to myself, If you think I'm interested enough in your welfare here, or hereafter, to preach to you for nothing, you're mistaken, I reckon. With that, I walked out. Not until I had kicked the remaining hats around the room, pooty lively. The next day I noticed an old feller with a dilapidated beaver on. They looked as if it had done duty on a scarecrow for several seasons, sidling up to me, and circling around two or three times, looking mighty close in my tile. I always think it was his stovepipe, but he was too much ashamed to come right out and lay claim to it. But that Gil Bisbee! I didn't wonder so much at the congregation dusting, after all, "'cause they didn't know me. "'But he, well, no matter. "'I'll get even on him yet.'" End of Section 51 Read by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida